Welcome to Talking Design. You're here with Stephen Crafty at RMIT University in Melbourne. And I'm here with a man who I've been following his career for many, many years. I stumbled across him, oh, 10, 15 years ago, I think. And his name is Srili Recht. He's relatively unknown in Melbourne, but in Europe, his work as a fashion designer in men's fashion is highly regarded. And um, he received... Um, menswear designer in Berlin in 2008 and just continues to go from strength to strength. He's now based in Iceland, so Melbourne unfortunately has lost him for in the long term, but uh, welcome to the show, Srili. Hello. Srili, you went to RMIT University in Melbourne, you studied fashion design. That's right. Yeah. Why, why fashion to start with? Why fashion? Yeah, why did you choose fashion? It's interesting, you know, it's exciting. Yeah. Um, it's enjoyable. And was there fashion in the family? Fashion business, but not creative fashion. Yeah. My father's side of the family has a, has a company selling accessories, haberdashery, stuff like that. So really, you graduated from RMIT. Your, probably your forte was tailoring, men's tailoring. Would that be correct? Uh, that's a good question. Because when I saw you in your studio many years ago, and I saw that your suiting... It was quite exceptional. Yeah, I started to get into the tailoring towards the end of towards the end of university because it was difficult. Really, the more difficult something is, I, I tend to be more attracted to it. Is that true? Yeah, like like our friendship. Yeah. <laughs> so I still remember. I have to describe because it was such an extraordinary moment for me when I saw one of your suits in your. You were working from a very modest uh, showroom warehouse in Collingwood. And the suit was sublime. I mean, I, I still remember the level of detail. You even had a silver uh, plaque. Instead of a, a cloth label, you had a silver plaque at the back of the jacket saying, Srilly Wrecked. I do remember that suit. That was a wedding suit. And serious money at the time. That was a, that was a good, a good um, commission. Hugh, I mean, I, and I said to you at the time, I said, how can you possibly sustain a business like this here? Well, you can't. You can't sustain a business like that anywhere. In the world, I, I don't believe so. I don't believe that it's mm. possible to uh, truly have a financially successful business if you are both the creative driving force, the uh, person who produces the physical output, and at the end of the day, the person who needs to sit there doing the books. This is too much. I've been doing that and thinking that it's the way to do it, but I don't believe that a creative person should divide themselves like that because they are uh, under the impression that you're supposed to do that. Was that your first foray into business straight after RMIT? Did you immediately set up or did you go and work for someone else to start with? I actually began working for somebody before university. I think I'd worked at about three different, three or four different labels here in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Began university and then... Um, while at university was sewing to you know to make money didn't sleep very much during university I, I don't think many people do and then after university moved the studio from the back of my parents house into a actual studio mm -hmm. with a lock on the door mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, just began just continued doing that you know essentially made to measure is what people call it here and for how many years did you do that? Probably two and a half. Yeah. 
and then it was to Iceland. No, then I had a an interesting interesting journey that at the time was not interesting, but in in, in hindsight, it's kind of story worthy. Uh, I'd organised a internship with or a stage with uh, the self professed best tailor in the world in Italy. I don't know how anyone can claim that really, but at the time it seemed incredibly romantic and appealing. And who was that person? Uh, Gianni Campagna. Mm-hmm. No one's ever heard of this guy. But at the time when the internet was still uh, limited and Google was just beginning and YouTube, I think it probably just come out. Uh, this guy, according to the internet, was the guy, according to his own website, that is, you know. And he, he was doing his suits for um, Pierce Brosnan and American presidents and... So I wrote to them, got in contact, and wanted to go there to do a stage, and got a grant, and flew over there, and they had absolutely no idea who I was when I arrived. So the person who I'd been communicating with had just, um, you know... Disappeared. Forgot. pretty much. So I went back there twice a day for 10 days in uh, 35-degree Italian heat. I'm not a fan of the heat. Mm. Until... um, a friend of mine said, dude, you're in the EU, just go somewhere else if it's not working. So I went to Berlin for a few months, maybe three months, and uh, organized a series of uh, interviews to do different different jobs, went over to uh, Antwerpen, went up to, to London, and just interviewed with basically everyone who was interesting at the time. Who were some of these people? Did you go to Dries? I went to Dries. Uh, A.F. van der Voorst, uh, Bruno Peters. Um, Did they see you, these people? Yeah, yeah all of them, yeah. Mm. Then I went over to London and interviewed with uh, Arcadius, McQueen, uh, Shalan. At the end of the day, it was really just this kind of... Um, this thing that I'd noted about everybody else's uh, biography, which was where they began working. Mm-hmm. And it was basically a career choice, you know, which is the one that's going to maybe not give me the best education because I thought I knew everything already Um, but the one that was going to give the best um, long term investment Mm -hmm. when it came to attaching my name to something and the biggest most uh, interesting brand at the time was McQueen so I chose that one So Cyrilli what did you take away from that experience working with McQueen in a positive sense what was something that you you felt drove you to the next level? That basically anything is possible. With the right team. Actually, this is is the most important thing for people to understand about a fashion brand, is that the name is only a name. The name is only as good as the team. So the person that comes out at the end of the runway show, it shouldn't be one person. It should be... When you see the when you see films on, um, I mean, there was a film on Dior and I recently produced. Uh, Jean Paul Gaultier's had a film on his his studio, and you see the huge amount of creative talent all coming together for one collection. It is a team. I like to bring out the lead with me when we come out at the end. Mm-hmm. And if you look at some photographs or videos, there's always mm-hmm. almost always somebody coming out so, with me. So, so uh, when did you start to get? interested in starting your own label in Europe? It sort of happened um, by accident, really. I was in Iceland. Iceland is not Europe, we have to make that clear. Iceland is its own thing. I was in Iceland and feeling a little like I needed to challenge myself and came up with this 
this idea to produce one product a month. So my, my goal was to design, sample, and have ready for production one product at the end of every month. And this was the non-product um, collection, I guess you could call it that. When I look back on it, it's, you know, a, a collection. And that began with uh, a series of shoes. And then was things like... Uh, an umbrella with a knuckle duster handle and I remember that knuckle duster handle mm. I remember when you designed it and then you were told it was actually a weapon and that it might be able to go into production was that right that's correct but when I, when I did produce it my studio was raided by the police and they were seized and I was uh, summoned to the court the state of Iceland uh, charged me with uh, Fence, with weapons, weapon importation and weapon manufacturing and weapon possession, multiple charges, <laughs> and I got a a well dressed lawyer mm-hmm. who um, amazingly got me off. So you could put them into production. Yeah, I mean, I was able to produce them anyway. I was producing them anyway, but yeah. it was more that. Um, Advertising them. Well, it's 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 more the combination of things. You know, it's not just producing a product; it's having it, selling it, telling people you have it. All of those things they all they all lead up so to it. So, how 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 would you describe your work? Because it is quite sculptural. I know that's a word that's been bandied around a lot when they look at your work. It's very layered. Um, it's a little bit goth. You know, it's a little bit dark, which is perfect for my aesthetic. And and how would you? How would you describe your work? Because people can't see, you know, they can Google your website and see your work, but how would you describe your clothing? From the outside looking in is the question you're asking. I don't yes. know that answer. Okay. But the outside, how would most people see your work? I don't know how to explain yeah. that. I think I can explain yeah. it from the inside looking okay. out. One thing that I've noticed that I do is... Perhaps one way to look at it is I like to make women's wear for men. So the clothing is essentially a woman's garment worn by a man in a masculine way. Not in an effeminate way. It's not men dressing as women. But quite frequently you you have... Well, you have really good examples of somebody like uh, Yves Saint who made the suit for women. The the, um, tuxedo. Sure. So he took uh, a powerful men's garment... And he then empowered the woman by giving that sort of thing over there. I think there was a yeah. whole whole psychology yeah. around what he was doing. Yeah. I'm not sure if he knew that. Yeah. I think he may have just used the the um, the idea that if it looks good, it is good. Yeah. And that's actually what it is when it comes down to fashion. If it looks good, it is good. Nothing more, nothing less. So from the outside looking in, it's hard to say because we we were have been adopted into a certain. Uh, psychographic that is into this dark neo-goth um, I mean the type of shops you're supplying through Europe dark, this, this is yeah, what I mean Our, Darklands Darklands um, Layers in London they all have this thing that they call um, goth it's like this gothic thing crossed with uh, this ninja aesthetic inspired by what Yoji was doing and what uh, Demulamista was doing. In the 80s. In the 80s, you had this backwards and forwards between Antwerp and Japan, this like Japan-Twerp thing, right? 
and that grew out into stuff that is now sort of dominated by by Boris and Carol and these sort of brands, Henry right? Cohen's. So I'm not sure how we ended up in that category because I don't make black clothing. Yeah. I don't up until very recently hadn't I'd never owned anything black whereas this market is primarily black and dark black dark dark shades, right? Uh, I think just because we knew I knew some guys who were into the whole uh, style zeitgeist community they started talking about our stuff and I think actually what translated for that community was more the aggressive nature of the thing so even though it was a woman's inspired by a woman's clothing there was a certain aggressive nature to it um, a certain beauty about there's a beauty in danger and that's what these guys love. So even if it's fluorescent orange, if it's a certain type of thing, if there's a certain subtext, something dark or aggressive, it doesn't have to be visually dark, but if it's conceptually dark, then it makes a transition. Oh, okay. So how do you, what are you working on now? What, what are you, what's something that, I mean, how, you obviously have to work months in advance. What collection are you working on now? Right now, I'm actually working on uh, some different synthetic biology projects, and they will then feed back into future collections, whatever they whatever they be. So the synthetic biology stuff has more to do with uh, culturing skin and modifying cells to do other things is kind of abstract in that explanation and there's a better way to describe it you know what it comes down to is that the fashion industry is sick right now it's in a situation what, where there's no direction or very little direction no no it's uh it's in global culture has become addicted to consumption we have consumption addiction disorder instant gratification mm -hmm. consumption addiction uh, there's a fantastic quote by um, Douglas Coupland. He says, shopping is not creativity. But for most people it is. Yeah. It is a pastime. It's what you do. So fashion is fashionable at the moment. It's been fashionable for about probably 10 years. Yeah. It wasn't fashionable 10 years ago. Yeah. It was just a thing that some people did. But now everything is fashion. And that has made a transition over into uh, all areas of consumer goods. So... You have things like, um, well, Apple is an example of a product design company that acts like a fashion brand. Yeah. And most companies now use the fashion business model to spruik their goods. So the average consumer is told to buy more, replace it quicker. And there's obsolescence built in. Yeah, I mean, Which planned is obsolescence the, is a whole, oh, a whole different discussion that worries me. Time. I mean, yeah. so, so, what are you trying to achieve then in your work? Longevity, or so something that not just you know whether it's season two thousand and ten or th season two thousand eleven. If I buy something from Surly Wrecked, you have this. It's almost like a piece of art that will just you'll have something for a very long time. Well, I don't want people to buy my stuff and throw it away. Yeah. I don't do that. I don't buy things and then do throw you think, them away. Do you think that's a direction in fashion that people are starting to become more a discerning? I mean, not look, 
mainstream no, fashion. You, absolutely not. You don't think they're becoming more <coughs> Absolutely not. I think business is business, and everyone is excited about making money and increasing quarterly growth. Uh, every fashion brand is about increasing growth. It's not about uh, increasing quality. It's about or ideas. you begin with a quality product, and as you grow, you have to reduce your price to get a broader market. So the very nature of that is globally destructive. Yeah. So the entire planet right now is on this accelerated drive to make more things, replace them quicker, have more options. Which is just the opposite of your philosophy. Well, it's the opposite of what uh, every climate scientist is saying. Yeah. Every climate scientist yeah. is saying, um, hey, maybe like don't use more stuff. Yeah. Let's think about living on the planet for a little bit longer. So I, I have to say, I wish more people were thinking about that. Because you get to this point where uh, talking about climate issues is almost dorky. You know, you see Leonardo DiCaprio very sincerely saying, we are in trouble. Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, it's Leo. You know, you don't sort of go, right. So it's someone uh, who knows he can reach a global audience stepping up and saying, listen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so really... It must be quite a different experience working in Iceland than working in Melbourne, Australia. I mean, I know you'd have different, you know, you'd have different issues, but there must be the, the fact that you can just zip across to London or go down to Germany, talk directly to people. You know, you can make more of a mark in that part of the world than I would imagine from here. Is that correct? Absolutely. And, you know... There is just a, a bigger market, and we're just a long way away. <clears throat> yeah, of course, you have the, the classic concept of the tyranny of distance, right? Yeah. You guys are taught that. I mean, we were taught that in university. Yeah. We were told of the tyranny of distance as though we had to respect the fact that we were never going to... Unless you went. Right. So what what's changed? What's changed in... Well, the internet. Yeah. I was at university... Not that long ago, but it actually it was 15 years. Mm. But when, when I was there, we didn't have Google image search. So let's think about it like this. Um, your lecturer says to you, uh, you guys have to come up with a new project and base it on a design or go do some research. And your information access point is the library downstairs. Mm. And you go downstairs and you have some books on Gaultier, mm. maybe a book on Japanese fashion as like a broad category, something about body art. Yeah. So the bar that you have is down here at number one. Mm. Everything that you know that you can do better than is down here. For anyone at home who can't see me, I'm, yeah. my hand is at the table. Now, the quality of the work that comes out of universities is overwhelming. I personally cannot look at it because I'm intimidated by the an 18-year-old or a 23-year-old who can produce clothing like that. I don't know if they made it themselves or if they've paid someone. Yeah. Or that's not the point. Yeah. The point is that the their artistic vision at that young age is so immense yeah. because they have access to every single collection ever made, every type of art, every type of architecture. It's all there. So the bar, I'm now putting my hand above my head, yeah. is above here. Where people begin at the beginning of their career is way further yeah. I'm now uh, pointing to the wall. Surely, <laughs> what tends to drive you still? Because you, you know, you've been in it for a, quite a long time now. But what t continually drives you? Is it just coming up with this new frontiers to to look at, like this biological 
investigation. Yeah, so that drives you new ways of looking at just very basic materials. I follow my creative barometer, and my creative barometer has two settings, excited or not excited. And if something excites me, I am 100% focused on that until the barometer shifts back to not excited. And then you pursue something else. That's right. Uh, it's not very good. <laughs> it means that I'm doing many things at once, mm. but I'm I'm excited by being mm. excited. I'm interested mm. in new things. That's what the... Um, I mean, the promise of uh, synthetic biology is amazing. The idea of uh, alternative production methods or alternative materials that mm. grow out of things instead of... Um, I don't know. It's it's. Yeah. It might just be a, a romantic vision, but if you think about something like a glass, where the amount of energy spent making a glass is phenomenal, mm. you've got trucks bringing silica to factories that explode them and melt them into the shape of something that we can now drink out of. And if you imagine it possible to grow a glass from uh, cells and nutrients, it's just a whole different thing. I I would like to believe that that's less weight on the planet. Well, I mean, we should also be consuming less. That's what it comes down to. Surely, I'm back on this topic again, aren't I? No, no, that's okay. <laughs> Surely, we, uh, unfortunately, we we don't we can't see your work in Australia anymore. You used to supply a few. Uh, no, I've never sold here. Oh, you've never sold here. No. Oh, okay. And why is that? I thought you did. Um, no. You... No one ever bought it. Oh. oh, wait, that's not true. No, I was selling in two stores in Sydney and one in Brisbane. Yeah, and no, but not in Melbourne. Oh, okay. That's what we were talking about. Yeah, well, anywhere in Australia. Something in Adelaide, maybe as well. Is it is it just the distance, or is it just the level of sophistication? Is no, the buyers just didn't buy it. That's uh, all it comes down to. Is it because it's too new, or is, they just don't? It's an aesthetic that's more European. I mean, it's I, very. Your clothes are very wearable. Yeah, I, it, I like to think that uh, the fashion industry is. A whole heap of circles that intersect. It's just a big Venn diagram, right? And each brand can fit into certain categories, does fit into others, and definitely doesn't fit into others. So the brands that I sit next to in a store, what I would call uh, companion brands, yeah, sure. Each boutique that will be buying the same six to 12 brands around the world, they're almost franchises. You have uh, like a store, three, four stores in London, one, two stores in Berlin. They all kind, they all buy the yeah. same brands. Yeah. They may as well be a franchise because their um, curatorial skills. Yeah. I think they believe more in the idea of curating a collection yeah. for their store than buying stuff. Yeah. Uh, it, it's difficult for people, you know. Like when a buyer comes in, they're not just buying stuff they're making a business decision they have to know that that product is going to sell or their role as a buyer doesn't exist it just anymore didn't, it didn't particularly take off here um yeah i mean we met yeah. with a lot of stores from melbourne i don't know why they didn't buy yeah. it well let's look guys it's, why didn't you buy it <laughs> it's our loss it's australia's loss but um i think it's extraordinary look it's it's Fabulous when you are overseas, when you walk into places like Lay's in London, who've got, you know, simply the best selection, one of the best selections in the world. It's a very beautiful store. It's a beautiful store. And you walk in and you see Srulli wrecked on the racks. You feel very proud. You think, wow, you know, Srulli's with the best in the world. I find it's, it's interesting because even though you have a name in, in various parts of Europe, if I mention your name, Srulli wrecked, 
to even someone in the fashion industry here, I say, oh, you know, Srilly Rick's extraordinary. They go, never heard of him. I find that quite strange that we don't seem to recognise people like yourself in Australia. Yeah, I, I, I think it's I was true. Sent a, I was sent a funny article about uh, two years ago uh, referring to... Um, one Australian designer is the only Australian designer that's ever shown on a catwalk in Paris. No, uh, I mention that. I name. think I think at that stage, I I think we'd done maybe four or five uh, f- collections in Paris, like yeah. runways in Paris, in the Louvre, in you know Palais Bourges, stuff like that. And it's like, how do you feel though? Do you feel jaded when you kind of don't no, get their recognition? No, no, no. no it's, yeah. it's not my. Um, it's not your nature. Oh, it is. It is yeah. my nature to have emotions. That's yeah. for sure. But it's um, not my market. I guess yeah. I can't be upset Everywhere. with people if they don't respond to the product. Yeah. Well, I don't even think it's responsive to the product. I think it's just the market. The media here is very small, and they and it's a little bit lazy. So uh, I'm part of that media, unfortunately. We You're not lazy. You I'm ask not me, lazy. You ask me complicated questions. But I'm I have not to lazy, but. I, I think generally people look for very obvious things in Australia and to look for the the more obscure talent, uh, people who are doing extraordinary things overseas takes a little bit more effort and I, I'm not sure people in my industry take that time to really follow up people and say, look, what, what's really Rec doing now? It's, it's, more of a, it's more of a finger pointing media here, mm. meaning the media here likes to point at stuff and say, what is that? Yeah. Why is that? It's more of a bullying mentality or... And we don't have really... We don't have a... a the theory. stuff that goes into the media here is like... It's more... Um, I, don't, I don't know what the word is for this. I think it's a lack of understanding. It's, and if you don't the understand nature, The nature of it is to make fun of things yeah. and use that as the... Uh, counterpoint for creating a story. Yeah. Well, usually, look, for instance, years ago, I remember reading there was a piece in the paper on Victor and Rolf's collection, and I think it was the bedroom collection, where, you know, the models came out wearing these huge pillows on their head. That was just an idea, and, and that was sent up in a very silly way, almost to say, well, look, everyone's on board. Anyone who reads this article will say the same thing. But uh, it is great when you meet people who are doing wonderful things in fashion. It's very rare for me. Uh, I do cover fashion but I'd say it's not uh, when you meet people who are doing things in a, on a different level and they've come from Australia like yourself it is quite exhilarating and so look I thank you Srilly for speaking to me today can I make a just a, like another you, point about the media yeah you can make any points you like the media has the responsibility to educate people that's exactly my point now if the media sees uh by your example, this yeah. collection by Victor and Rolf, and the person who is in charge of writing that story is not educated to understand what they're looking at. The nature of what they're then going to talk about is not mm-hmm. going to be positively educational for the rest of their audience. So they're going to make fun of it, yeah. which then teaches the audience reading that, that fashion or this sort of thing is to be made fun of. Yeah. No, no, it's serious stuff. I can tell you that Victor and Rolf were probably standing there going... Who cares? Sure. And also, like, when they come up with the idea, wouldn't it be cool to do this? Wouldn't that be a funny thing to look at? Wouldn't that be crazy? It's just about enjoying what you do. And that's what most fashion designers become excited by an idea. They fixate on that idea. 
And they want to share the love of that idea with other people. And it's lovely when you read about those ideas and you see them. So, did you go to their collection in London? I went to the Barbican. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was one of the best. That was uh, for those who who didn't get to see Victor and Rolf's exhibition at the Barbican. I would say it's probably. I was there at least four or five hours. It was probably the most extraordinary experience. It's amazing. It was amazing. Um, But that's another show. But look, thanks so much for coming in today, Sruli. Thanks for having me. I. I think you're just going to go from strength to strength. And I think RMIT should be very proud that they had you as a graduate. Well, um, RMIT is a very good school. It's a great passion school. I wanted to leave every day that I was there. Mm. I was struggling the entire time with uh, my relationships with my lecturers. But every day I use things that I learned there. This is not a plug, by the way. I really really do believe that the education that I received at this university Mm. was everything. No, it's pretty amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You've been with Stephen Crafty at RMIT University, Talking Design. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.